You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Turn Washington Spies. Get a season pass now on iTunes. We are joined today by Alexander Rose, an author and historian. He was born in the United States, but raised in Australia and Britain, and educated at Cambridge University, where he was awarded a doctorate for his thesis, Radar Strategy, The Air Dilemma in British Politics, 1932 to 1937. After this, he worked as a journalist for several years, including as an editorial writer for the Daily Telegraph and the National Post of Canada. He is the author of Washington Spies, The Story of America's First Spy Ring which is the basis for AMC series Turn, and now second season called Turn, Washington Spies, where he's a consultant on the first season, now a writer and co-producer of the second season. He is also the author of Kings in the North, The House of Percy in British History, as well as American Rifle, a biography, which describes how America's military firearms shaped the country's history and vice versa. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New York Observer, the CIA's Journal Studies and Intelligence, the Quarterly of Military History, and several other publications. And he is the author of an upcoming book, Men of War, The American Experience of Battle at Bunker Hill, Gettysburg, and Iwo Jima, which will be released in June of 2015. Welcome, Alex Rose. Thank you for taking the time to come talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Well, thanks for inviting me. So I, as a historian, it has to be quite exciting to see your book translated to the small screen, yet as a historian as well, perhaps a little scary. I mean, this is your baby. This is something you tend a lot of time working on. Anytime you take something and, and make it a movie or a TV show, there has to be some significant changes. It, was there a mixture of those two for you when, when the AMC decided to turn this into turn? Uh, you know, to be honest, I wasn't at all worried about how it was going to be turned into into, into TV, into a TV series. Um, you know, because I just realized from the get-go that when you convert sort of text into film, it's never a one-to-one ratio. You can't, you can't have a TV show that 
absolutely replicates the book. Right. Um, it's just it's, it's it's just impossible to do. So what you what you sort of think of is is, is you know d does the series get across the the sort of the authenticity of the period? Um, does it get across the kind of characters who were who were involved in this world? Does it make you want to visit um, this world? And also you know does this you know does it recreate the kind of lost an alien world of 18th century New York, and that's what the show does. You can't you can't worry too much about whether, you know, they leave out a, a, a an important sentence or something like that. Right. So when you have book to TV or book to film, it's uh, it's that you know it's never going to be sort of identical twins. They're going to be sort of second cousins. And I think once you realize that, then you then everything becomes much more relaxed. Right. Um, and you just you can just sort of when you visit the sets, you can just sort of soak it in. So when they when I went down to uh, Virginia or Richmond where they where, where they were filming the pilot and then the, the show, um, what really sticks out for an historian is is to see this world, um, just sort of coming rising up from the ground. Where, you know, it's things that have been in your head. You know, when you're when you're a historian, you sort of imagine your characters. You imagine what New York was like, and you try and and you try and bring that across to the to the reader. Whereas with with film. You, you can actually walk through the little village of Setauket. You can actually walk through the New York sets. And uh, nowadays, now that there's a big soundstage down in Richmond, you can actually walk through all of the, of the you know, the, in, the insides of these houses, and it's that are being beautifully recreated. Uh, and then, of course, on top of that, you see all the people wearing costumes, and it's it's it's, it's actually quite jarring, right. um, but fascinating at the same time. I I could never imagine this book as a movie because it's so in-depth there's so much going on but the show is really successful because it takes its time yeah. it does kind of get people in that mindset because most most Americans have learned about this back in third and fourth grade mm -hmm. but unlike shows or other let's say spy related TV shows that are out that are Cold War related or more recently related where people know the time period people can relate uh, to, to the environment you have to create something from scratch and if you just throw people into the action in this show, you miss essentially half the book. TV is, I think, the perfect medium for this because you can take your time and work your way through. Um, I mean, other than the Band of Brothers, which had mm -hmm. 12 hours to do it, most book-to-movie translations just miss the whole point. It's, it's very hard to do. Um, it, it's really what makes TV the good, perfect medium for this kind of thing. And it's nice to see that AMC, and this is not a plug for them, but it will give them credit where credit's due. It's nice to see AMC giving the time for you to do this. I mean, because most shows would not allow the first five or six episodes of Turn from season one to take its time. And I'm, I'm not saying it was slow. I'm saying it, it purposely and deliberately developed this world, which you never have. You, you'd be able to do that in five minutes in a movie and then have to jump into the action. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're really lucky in uh, we are experiencing a sort of renaissance in television um, in that, you know, TV series are booming, um, and, and nowadays you can take the time to tell stories that before would have either been made into a movie, and so you, then you have 90 minutes or 100 minutes to, to try and, as you say, portray a whole world. Um, whereas as you, nowadays you can you can t you know you've, you've got we've got I think with 10 episodes per season, uh, 43 minutes per episode, you can really just take the time to include all these little little details, little period points. Um, that would otherwise just get sort of airbrushed uh, and rushed through. Um, and again, you know, with the first season of any show, the real, uh, structurally, you need to establish your characters and you need to establish relationships. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and after that, you you can begin to branch out. So in, in the in the first season, as you as you as you pointed out, you know we had we spent quite a lot of time on relationships and like working out who these people are and what what on earth this world is because it is it is weird if you're used to 21st century um, living. You know that people, uh, you know obviously 18th century inhabitants of the 18th century live completely differently, but yet there are points of similarity. And so right. you, you bring out the the idea that. The 18th century, 18th century New York, and I think this is the same for any kind of historical drama, is, is the kind of, to, to really draw people in, you want them to say, you know, that's a world I'd really like to visit. And at the same time, they say, I, I'd never want to live in that world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so that's what we try and do. You right. try and show the, the pros and the cons, and you just try and you know, show the sort of the dirt and the grime, but also the, the glint and the glitter right. as well, about how wonderful it was to live in the past. Um, but with the first season, again, we're establishing those relationships. We're setting, you're, you're meeting the people. You're working out who's what and who's where right. at what point. Um, now, in the second season, we're going to be doing a lot more uh, spy crop, the actual technical stuff, the actual spying and spookery. So that's so it's going to be, I, I think, a slightly, it'll be a different show uh, in terms of atmosphere a little bit uh, now that Abe Woodhull is, has decided that he is going to see this job right. through. The book and, and the show are about the Culper Ring, um, which really was the first attempt at strategic intelligence. I, and I think that people look at this and say, what's the big deal? Uh, I kind of equate it to when, when someone our age hears the Beatles for the first time or hears Nirvana or someone younger, like, what's everything sounds like this. Well, everything sounds like this mm-hmm. because of the Beatles and later on because of bands like Nirvana. Strategic intelligence is done today because of innovators like mm-hmm. this Culper Ring. Before this, it's really only tactical military intelligence. I mean, that, that's been going, going back thousands of years. I mean, what, is that that real transition that we're seeing here with the Culpers? Yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, late 18th century transition in that you see, you know, as you, as you pointed out, before that, of course there had been intelligence. Of course there had been spying. You know, everyone's been spying on each other since, you know, uh, since the, the biblical era. But... You know, as you say, for the most part, it was it was military reconnaissance of various kinds. You know, i.e., uh, General A sent out some scouts. They probed the enemy lines. They were in uniform, by the way, and then they would return. You know, a day later or a few hours later, and with reports of the enemy's uh, deployments and 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 uh, you know strengths and so on. Um, by the early 18th century or 17th, 18th century, you're seeing the development of diplomatic intelligence. That is, the various consulates and embassies would all be spying on each other, steaming each other's, uh, steaming open each other's mail, intercepting it, code breaking, that kind of thing. Um, it was a kind of a, um, it was almost uh, kabuki-like in its in its formality. Right. Um, I think there was, a, I remember an anecdote about the, the Habsburg Black Chamber, which was, you know, that which was so efficient at steaming open and, in, you know, intercepting and steaming open and decrypting all the uh, embassy intelligence in in, uh, in Vienna uh, that they would work the cryptanalysts there would work two weeks on two weeks off um, because they were so sort of strung out. But they would uh, they had they basically got the mailbags in the morning and within two hours they were back where they should be. Right. Um, and it was a uh, it was sort of this this wonderful sort of. Almost process that they had, and everyone knew about this. Right. Um, now, and George Washington himself, in the in the French and Indian War, did the traditional kind of spying. He did the you know he did military reconnaissance, and he was quite good at it. Um, what you see in the in the 
beginning of the American um, War of Independence is that, yeah, at the beginning they start off doing just the basic military recon. Um, but with the Culpa Ring, you see the advent of something new, and that is that you have spies, civilian spies for the most part, in plain clothes living behind enemy lines on a permanent basis. That is, that is the big new development. Um, these guys stay on site and they, and they, they send their intelligence uh, through various means back to headquarters. Uh, whereas beforehand, you know, you would send a couple of soldiers in, gather some intel, get back. So that's, that's, what, the, that's what the real innovation um, that, that pioneered by the Culper Ring was. This innovation comes from and the leader of the Culper Ring in many instances, Benjamin Talmadge. But before Talmadge, you have, and this is where I get to plug the museum, you have Nathaniel Sackett. Uh, who a great man, a great, a great unsung hero. I think. Sure, yeah. I mean, we sing him all the time here, but certainly outside in history books, you don't tend to see his name. And, and of course, uh, here at the Spy Museum, we have this the, the Sackett letter. Um, but I, I want to ask you because you, you are, you know, you, you've seen the original documents, not just our letter, but the other documents beyond it. Um, what is what is Sackett's real impact on American intelligence? I mean, is it just that he invented new ways of doing intelligence, new tradecraft? Um, you know, or is there is there a broader impact to Sackett beyond that? Uh, Sackett is is fasc- is a fascinating individual. Uh, one reason being is that so little is known of him. He's just I, I have I talk about him in the book, and I and of course I'd never heard of him before either. So he gets appointed by Washington to run just sort of the the rudimentary intelligence operations for the for the Continentals, and he does this amazing job. Uh, it was he who kind of brings in. Uh, Talmadge. It's he who imparts the knowledge that he gleaned to Talmadge. Um, but again, it was all improvised. It was all ad hoc. And I think the the problem with Sackett is, is that he seems to suffer from a, a run of ill luck. I mean, it's really, as I try to bring out in the book, you know, it's nothing is inevitable in intelligence. And all of these people, including Washington, were all feeling their way in the dark. There, was no, there were no instruction manuals. There was no intelligence apparatus. There were no bureaucratic organizations uh, as, one would now, as one has nowadays. No one was there to really teach them how to spy. It's not that easy. It's really easy to make major mistakes. Um, and that's, what, that's the problem with Sackett. He, he sort of ends up on the wrong side of history uh, when certain plans go wrong. And he's eventually ousted uh, and Talmadge takes over the, the Culper Ring and, and right. goes on from there. But I think Sackett deserves a real um, sort of plinth in the in this sort of spies uh, pantheon. Right. So if you've seen season one of Turn, which if you haven't, it's now on Netflix, as last night Jamie Bell said about 15 times, uh, but certainly go back and take a look at the first season. You will know uh, the historical figure, Abe Woodhull. Um, now in the second season, and again, people may be listening to this podcast a year from now, so you're, you can talk more than perhaps you did before. Uh, we are going to be introduced uh, to uh, a, a, a new character, a very important person. Uh, Woodhull was Culper Sr. Now we are going to find Culper Jr., which is a man named Robert Townsend, who was integral to maintaining the Culper Ring. Why, why does Woodhull have to stop being as aggressive as he was uh, when it comes to intelligence, and, and where does Townsend come into play, and why is he so integral to this maintaining this link to what's happening inside New York? Well, Abe Woodhull had one major problem, 
and that was that he lives in Setauket, which is on Long Island, about 50 miles or so from New York. It's not an easy trip in to the city. Uh, New York at the time was the kind of the, the naval of British operations in North America. It was sort of the uh, commercial capital, it was the financial capital, it was the, almost the, one of the loyal capitals. Um, it was just, a, a, it was sort of almost, and Long Island was the kind of the breadbasket of the British Army. So, you know, and it was a huge base and headquarters and so forth. What the Culper Ring quickly discovered was that they needed someone in New York to serve as Washington's eyes and ears. There were times when New York was so sort of dark and silent intelligence-wise that, you know, Washington didn't even really know the names of the, the British commanders. He wasn't quite sure who they were. Mm -hmm. He was getting all of his information from um, three-month-old newspapers. Um, so they really needed to have someone in the city, um, you know, just working the beat. And Woodhull, you know, as we show in the show and, in, and, in, and as well in the book, couldn't, couldn't do it. He couldn't be there for long periods of time for just various reasons. So he needed to find someone. And, you know, finding someone is, to spy for you is not really that right. easy. Um, well, it was easy for Talmadge because he had a bunch of his old friends from back in the day. Tal you know, Townsend really is kind of the first person that's brought into this outside of this small group of buddies. Yeah, well, all, all the Culper Ring until then were all childhood friends. These guys had grown up together. They'd known each other from well, since birth, I guess. You know, their families were, had been intermarried for you know, six generations. They all knew each other. They could all trust each other. And they only, um, they, they never let in anyone else. Um, because, you know, that's the weak link with all uh, networks is that it's, they start off secure and you let in an unstable element, and suddenly that element turns out to be uh, a double or an informer or something like that. And so that the, 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 the uh, network gets, gets blown. So Woodhull eventually finds a man called Robert Townsend. He was, uh, Townsend was not part of their gang. He was from Oyster Bay, he was a wealthy merchant's son, uh, but you know what, he lived in New York, and it takes a long time for Woodhull to learn how to trust him because what, uh, Townsend himself is, a, is, you know, shifts a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, he's not quite um, on the same level as, as, as Woodhull and his friends, um, but he is very, very efficient when he sets his mind to it. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, you know, I just, you know, I discuss Townsend's own motivations right. and who, who was this guy? You gotta, you know, you gotta, when you're doing spying, you need to understand the man uh, and his motives. And Townsend is, is, one of the you know the most interesting and complex of, of the of the of the culprit spies, but eventually they let him in and mm -hmm. and he works well, right. and that's what we try and show on the show that he this is not an you know an easy catch. Right. He has to be brought in slowly to the ring. Well, I mean, what, you don't really have to recruit. I mean, Abe needs to be recruited, but it's he's being recruited by a guy he's known his entire life. You know, in real life espionage, mm -hmm. you're recruiting essentially a stranger. You've got yeah. to get uh, them to trust you and get them to. Uh, to, to be willing to work with you doing things that are very, very dangerous. And mm -hmm. I think that I'm looking forward to seeing how that's portrayed uh, because that's, that's what we deal with in everyday life here in the Spy Museum is, is how do you recruit agents who, you're basically, how, how do you tell somebody to completely turn against their country? How to Absolutely. Co commit treason, how to yeah. lie to everyone around them, their families, and do what uh, comes very unnaturally to them, yeah. uh, which the Talmadge hadn't had to do at that point quite yet. Um, I want to ask you about the Culper successes because some of them are relatively well known. I mean, this part of this 
subplot of the second season will be the Benedict Arnold story, which mm-hmm. the Culper uh, ring uh, was, was a big part of, if not the uh, key to unearthing. Uh, they also were integral in making sure that the French were able to come full-fledged into the Revolutionary War. And again, if you remember back from third grade, that mattered. Uh, but one of the more interesting stories, and it's not as exciting, is the counterfeit money story of, of the Culper ring. Uh, to, to, to let the, give the background to our, our listeners out there, um, it, there was an attempt several times to destroy the American economy by, by flooding counterfeit money into the colonies. And normally it didn't work well because it was very hard to replicate the paper that was used in colonial money. Uh, but the Culper Ring was able to discover that the British had intercepted a huge ream, a big roll of the, the paper that colonial money was printed on. Uh, and the, the plan was to flood the American economy and destroy it, essentially. And that's not that sexy, but of course, if you destroy the American economy, the war ends. And, and the, you know, can you talk a little bit about why this mattered as much as I think it did? Um, well, the, you know, the first thing is, is that the, the colonial government was doing a very good job of destroying its own currency. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the culpers just kind of helped uh, to, to, the, to demonstrate this to, to Congress itself. Um, what I point out in the book, and that, this, that you know, the counterfeit money episode is just one of many episodes that the culpers were involved in. What I, what I try and do in the book is we have this image of spying as almost, again, it's sort of James Bondian or um, uh, Jason Bornian. You know, there's just one lantern-jawed, guy who goes on some huge mission to save the world and he succeeds and he saves everyone from supervillains and, 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 and you know, we have this image in our heads of, of spying um, of, you know, that spying is really sort of consists of a, a, a bunch of James Bonds and Jason Bournes who go out on a, on a super secret mission and uh, do a whiz-bang job and they save the world and they kill the supervillain and everything is fine after that. Um, whereas intelligence in real life is really a matter of a, a large number of very small episodes and developments and evolutions, um, and it's a lot. Of, you, you, a lot of the time, you're working in a kind of um, you know atmosphere of just, an, of just constant enigma. I mean, I like to liken intelligence to, or knowing what the enemy's intentions and designs are, to having say a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and you've only got 40 of the pieces and the bunch of the, and you don't have any of the corners or the sides or anything right. so you're trying to work out just from just isolated bits of information that have been brought in from sources of varying uh, ability and trustworthiness and you're trying to sort of create a picture of what what the enemy's up to so what the culprits did is they you know the culprits as i point out in the book they didn't win the war for washington you know Wars are generally won not by hard intelligence, but by actual fighting on the ground and in the sea and in the air. Um, the, sort of the actual killing rather than the actual intelligence. Um, but what they did do was they, they helped keep Washington informed of British activities and intentions and strengths. And it was all, all really vital stuff. Um, and I think... I mean, that's what, that's what they really need to be congratulated for. Because Washington, again, what we also forget about intelligence is that you need to have, uh, as I try and measure in the book, I try, I try and sort of quantify the culprit's impact on the American war effort uh, on the longer lines of, the, along the principle of, you know, 
you've got to be able to work out intelligence input and how that translates into operational output. And what, you know, as I trace in the book, you know, there's several times when corporate intelligence, um, you know, positively uh, impacted or actively impacted uh, Washington's military decisions. Well, I mean, on paper, the British have every advantage. I mean, I mean, the, the only disadvantage the British have is that they're thousands of miles away from their home base. But, you know, have a battle-tested professional army. You have the greatest navy in the world. You have the greatest economy in the world. On paper, you know, that's you know, it's the sports metaphor. They should, the Americans should be not should not be winning this game. Uh, and, and really, it's it's Washington's use of intelligence. I think the, the change in name for the second season makes a lot of sense because it's Washington's use of intelligence that really turns the tide. It's not the information itself, but it's it's. If you have a, a leader that doesn't know how to utilize it as well as Washington does, it doesn't matter how good your intelligence agency is. Yeah. Well, uh, again, in the, in the book I show that Washington was just one of the world's natural spy masters. It was very easy for Washington to have been in receipt of all of this wonderful culpa ring intelligence and, it, and to just have thrown it away. Um, but Washington, from the beginning, uh, you know, was used to you know, guide and regulate his agents. There are times, uh, as, I, as I point out, you know, where Abe Woodhull, at the beginning, is very enthusiastic about what he's doing. So he writes these very, very long letters to going on about liberty and the pursuit of happiness and how, how, you know, how loyal he is to Washington. He just goes into these flights of fancy. And Washington, at some point, just writes him back and says, uh, OK, that's great, thanks, but I really need to know uh, the names of the regiments, the numbers of the troops, how many horses they have, how many bales of hay have they purchased? I, he just needs hard right. numbers, which um, and you know, and so Washington, you, you can see chiding and cajoling and influencing and persuading these agents who are again, as as we say, you know, amateurs, right? Um, you know, to to guide them into sort of giving him what he really wants. Right. And that's, and that's always the mark of a, of a natural spy master. Well, and the difficulty that he's facing is the, the ever-present difficulty of this, this balance between wanting information, between the, the need of collection and protecting sources at the same time. Mm. I mean, it, it's, it's always a question of how far do you push? How much do you want them to do without blowing this ring? I mean, Talmadge is really the one that has to manage that because Washington is constantly asking for more and more information. The spies on the ground, like Woodhull and Townsend, are always worried about going too far to get caught. And that's, I think, is, is it right to, to give Talmadge the credit for kind of being the middleman and managing those two expectations from both sides? Yeah, absolutely. Talmadge, again, is a, is a good manager. Like any good case officer, he's, he's a man-manager. It would be a great sort of human resources um, <laughs> vice president, um, you know, he's got, he's got these spies and, you know, these, these are not cardboard cutouts. These are real people and they have real fears and real apprehensions and real enthusiasms. Um, and none of them are trained. And so, and they all have different characters. So he's got to sort of manipulate them and they are his, remember, childhood friends, but he's also an army officer and they are doing a, a real life and death job here. Um, so he can't always be a nice guy. And, you know, so you have Abe Woodhull, who's, again, very nervous. I mean, there are parts in the war where he's on the sort of the edge of a nervous breakdown because he thinks that the British are going to be, you know, um, kicking down his door. Mm -hmm. And in those days, you know, this is not just a little light slap on the wrist if you get caught. It's a very quick trip to the local scaffold. Um, 
as you know, Nathan, as Nathan Hale discovered to his cost. You know, it wasn't just a light slap on the wrist of your court. It was a very quick trip to the local scaffold, as Nathan Hale uh, had, had, had found to his cost. And so it's like a little bit like herding cats, I think. Um, Talmadge has to put pressure on Woodhull to, to keep on coming back, no matter, no, matter what the, uh, no matter what his fears are. He needs him to report. Uh, Caleb Brewster likes to go off, who's a bit of a sort of an, a, a sort of an action man figure who just liked fighting people. <laughs> uh, you know, he has Caleb Brewster is off doing his little adventures. He's got to make sure that Caleb Brewster is in the right place at the right time to pick up the messages to get them across Long Island Sound so he can get them to Washington's headquarters. Um, and as for Townsend, Townsend is a is an odd man. I mean, he's something of a prima donna if he doesn't if he doesn't get a properly appreciated. Um, he can bring in gold. He's great at bringing in, 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 in fantastic first-rate intelligence, mm. but he has to be handled very right. carefully. Um, he's also a, a merchant and a, and a merchant's son. He has a, a wealthy background. You know, he keeps a very um, close eye on his expenses, and if he doesn't get paid, I, I don't mean paid, I mean if he get, doesn't get reimbursed, right. um, then you're going to have some problems. Um, a Woodhull is not a rich man either, so he needs to be reimbursed. And so you've got these problems with sort of not only management but on financing. Right. So they're very real-world problems that you don't really think about when you think about spying and, and James Bond. You know, James Bond doesn't have any problem, right. you know, getting his expenses reimbursed. Uh, <laughs> but you know, these guys, I mean, the, the amount of time that, that, Wood, uh, that uh, uh, Talmadge had to spend trying to get money out of the, tr- you know, the, the treasury mm-hmm. people... Um, to just give some some money to to his agents, it takes up I don't know weeks of his time. Right. So it's these little tiny things that that add up to quite a lot. We, we talked a lot about men, uh, but I'd like to talk a little bit about women for a second. Um, Anna Strong in the series is a main character, is someone that you see every episode. Is there's a it's a love interest of Abe Woodhull, uh, not so much in real life well we don't know and i think that's one of the interesting questions is is she, there's so little about her historically we know that she was involved in some way but she wasn't part of this childhood friendship i think that's one of the key distinctions between reality and the series but she was what 10 years older than everybody else mm-hmm. um and I, the romantic angle is is great for tv not probably not in real life can you talk a little bit about not only Anna Strong's real-world implication and her, her, her impact on the Culper Ring, but also women at this time and how, uh, how they were used during the revolution uh, for espionage, if there's anyone beyond Anna Strong. Um, yeah, Anna Strong, again, Anna Strong is an interesting person. Um, there's, again, not much is known about her, and what there is known about her is, is often sort of passed down by oral tradition. Um, but you know, we, we do have we do have some documentary uh, documentary evidence about her, which is um, you know, and she was married to Celia Strong and, and all that kind of thing, um, and we, we there is evidence in the in the Culper letters that she was, I think I sort of say that she wasn't a permanent member of the Ring. She was an occasional sub agent of the Ring who would do would help them on right. certain on certain uh, missions. Um, in the series, you know, she is she is she is promoted to you know, full membership, right. uh, and she do, and again the, the, the two key words that you use there were love interest, and so we've got to have you know we've right. got to have some romantic spark going on here, um, and so you know I think I think but again women you know women are have 
generally been written out of the revolution a little bit, uh, apart from some very well-known wives such as uh, Abigail Adams and so on. Um, so we were trying to sort of restore some of that balance a little bit that, you know, women were, would, would make fantastic agents because they could just pass, they could just pass scrutiny. Right. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why Anna Strong in, in real life was, was used by the Culper Ring was because at one point Abe is going into the city, into New York City quite a lot, and, you know, that's going to attract suspicion from various sentries and checkpoints and so on, right. that there's this single guy going to the city all the time. Um, why? Interesting. So he, he gets Anna to sort of sit with him and basically pretend to be his wife. Right. Um, so we, and again, there's no guard, no self-respecting guard, no honorable man is going to search a woman in, in, at the time. So th th they make ideal agents. Right. They should have used more of them, to tell you the truth. One, one last question. This, again, is difference maybe between reality and the show. And, and, and actually, it's not. It's just more of a characterization question about John Andre, because Andre is such an interesting part of this story. Um, on the show, he's this suave, well, spy master Bondian almost character where he he's, has his act together. He's a little bit more like Nathan Hale in real life, a little bit more bumbling, a little bit less put together perhaps than he's portrayed in the show. Um, can you talk a little bit about Andre? Because Andre to me is one of the more fascinating. He, he turns as quickly as, I mean, when he's captured, it's like instantaneous, I'll do whatever you want, I'll work with you, what do you want to know? Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and to me, that, that jumps out as uh, a true professional in the world of intelligence, mm -hmm. but maybe not. So. Well, the, the real Andre was absolutely charming. You don't rise that quickly, as, as quickly as he did, from, I, I wouldn't say poor beginnings, but, you know, you know, modest beginnings um, to become essentially, uh, you know, the adjutant of the of the army. I mean, sort of, it was it was kind of a this um, sort of exponential ascent from basically out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So he did. He was a very charming man. That's what J.J. Field, who's the the, the actor who who, do, who portrays Andre, gets really across that he is, you know, he is a ladies' man. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is very very good at light dinner conversation. He's fantastic at it. Uh, he was also responsible for helping helping to sort of rationalize British Army intelligence, which was a real mess until Andre came along. You know, Andre did tidy up the books. He did start recruiting agents. He did, he did um, uh, you know, uh, organize the financing, all this kind of thing. So he did quite, quite a lot. He wasn't just this sort of charming idiot. Mm -hmm. uh, there, was a lot, there was a lot more to Andre. Uh, than is usually given out. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is the same man who, despite some mistakes, did also manage to recruit Benedict Arnold, right. who was one of the highest-ranking generals in the Continental Army. Um, I mean, that, that in itself is a, a huge achievement. Right. Um, you know, I, I think the, you know, I, I think J.J. Uh, Field really gets to the heart of the, of the man in the show. And, of course, we, you know, dramatize certain things. Mm -hmm. But by and large, I think I think it's quite an accurate uh, accurate portrayal. Right. Let's talk about your new book. Take a little turn to the side. Um, coming out soon. Uh, well, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, it could already be out. So go grab it. Um, you're you're taking a look um, at three different battles and, and and what it's like to be a soldier to going from different time periods. Can you talk a little about the idea for this new book and, and how it came together? Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, when I was an undergraduate at university many moons ago, 
Uh, I picked up in the university bookstore, which they still had at that time, a, a book by someone called John Keegan, and it was called The Face of Battle. I'd never, even, I'd never even heard of it, and I picked it up, and I remember reading it over the course of a couple of days and thinking this was the best book I'd ever read. Um, and uh, for those unfamiliar with Keegan, Keegan's The Face of Battle, it was published in the mid-'70s, and it took... Um, you know, it looked at the common soldiers or the regular soldiers' experience at three British battles, uh, Agincourt in 1415, uh, Waterloo in 1815, and the Somme in 1916. Um, and it was a, it's a fantastic book. And then uh, about six years ago, five, six years ago, uh, I sort of came up with the idea and thought, you know, has anyone ever done an American version of Face of Battle? And I looked it up and I didn't find anything. And so that's when I started thinking, hmm, that's, a, that's a, perhaps a good idea. So I, and I started looking into it. And so what, what I've got is um, a, I, I, I just started off with a, a very basic question. What's it like to be in a battle? And no, I've never been in uniform, never served in uniform. I don't think a lot of people have. Um, but I think a lot of young, young people, especially young males, um, always secretly want to know how they would fare in battle. You know, would they would they stand and fight with their comrades, or would they <laughs> sort of run when the bullets started flying? And it's it, you never really know until that sort of dread moment of crisis arrives how you will behave. Right. And I've always found it fascinating because um, I I have no idea myself. I don't I don't know about anyone else. So, but basically, so I took three iconic American battles. Um, I'm not saying they're necessarily the greatest battles or the most important battles or the most pivotal battles, but they are the kind of battles that if you went round uh, the streets of, of any American town and you say, hey, name three famous battles from these wars, what right. would you say? And uh, so what we did was we came up with, uh, well, I came up with uh, Bunker Hill in uh, 1775, um, Gettysburg in 1863, and Iwo Jima in 1945. Um, and I just... Um, you know, I just I just look at how the experience of war has changed. Um, I go through all of the uh, you know the letters, the, um, the, the 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 you know the archives, the diaries, the memoirs, all that kind of stuff, and just try and explain how what it's like to be in these battles and you know what what happened during them. So it's you know in the sense of um, you know how people behaved and acted and what they saw and felt and experienced and heard and smelled. Um, so it's really it's interesting enough. It's it's a book about battles. that's not really about battles. Right. I don't really talk about the, you know the three days of uh, you know the troop movements at right. Gettysburg. Um, you know there are thousands. There's, of a, there's plenty of other books yeah, I think that that's can do been that covered for, yeah. before. <laughs> um, I basically you know I sum it up in a page or two. I say look this is what happened. And there's a couple of maps. But basically I'm really interested in what it's like to have been at Gettysburg, being a Civil War soldier, Union or Confederate at Gettysburg. Um, and I you know I, I so. Over the course of the book, I can, you know, I can sort of distinguish between different periods of time. You know, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. You know how the experience of battle has changed, how people can feel it differently, conceive it differently, um, and you know what it's, what, you know what it's like to be a, a sort of a man of war right. in different eras. Right. Well, he is the author of Washington's Spies: The Story of America's First Spy Ring, which is the basis for the AMC series Turn. And he's also the author of the book we just talked about: Men of War: The American Experience of Battle at Bunker Hill. Gettysburg and Iwo Jima. Alex Rose, thank you for taking the time to join us here at the International Spy Museum. Well, thank you for having me. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. 
and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Spies. Get a season pass now on iTunes.